0: Welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast channel under New Books Network. I'm your host, Ian Shin. Today, our guest is Tamara Vanett Shelton, who's going to talk about her new book, Herbs and Roots: A History of Chinese Doctors in the American Medical Marketplace, published in 2019 by Yale University Press. Tamara Vanett Shelton is Associate Professor of History at Claremont McKenna College where her research focuses on the social history of the American West, with particular focus on race, labor, and the environment. She's also the author of A Squatter's Republic, Land and the Politics of Monopoly in California, 1850 to 1900. Herbs and Roots is about the long 200-year history of Chinese medicine in the United States. And in our conversation, we talk about the surprising and resilient decisions the Chinese herbalists and Chinese doctors make as they interface with both Chinese and non-Chinese patients from the colonial period up to the present. I hope that you enjoy our conversation. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Asian American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ian Shin, one of the hosts of the channel. Today we have the pleasure of talking to Tamara Vanett Shelton about her book Herbs and Roots: A History of Chinese Doctors in the American Medical Marketplace, published by Yale University Press in 2019. Tamara, welcome to the
1: show. Thanks, Ian. It's great to be here.
0: It's great to have you. Um, I wonder if we can start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background.
1: Sure. Uh, well, I am a fourth generation Californian. Um, I, I have lived in California nearly all my life. I, I currently live in Claremont, California, which is about 30 miles east of Los Angeles. Um, but I grew up in Pasadena. Uh, My mother was born and raised in Chinatown, um, in San Francisco, Chinatown. My dad uh, met her in Berkeley in the 60s. Um, So we are, you know, we've got these sort of deep roots in California. I'm a proud Californian. um, But I did go temporarily to the East Coast and did my um, undergraduate degree at Amherst, where I majored in history, um, a college that you might be familiar with in. Um, and then uh, I did my PhD. Came back to California, did my PhD at Stanford, um, and specialized in the history of the American West. So uh, much of my research, for the first part of my career, was really uh, focused on, um, on social and political movements in uh, the 19th century American West, especially those that sprang up in California in um, the wake of uh, the acquisition of, of California and other Western territories uh, at the end of the U.S.-Mexico War and then the California Gold Rush. So that was that was really the first kind of research I did um, and uh, became a kind of springboard for, for this book um, in a way that maybe isn't entirely self-evident.
0: Well, before we, we touch on that, I, I do want to just sort of go back and, and uh, reminisce a little bit. But um, you know, the, the first time we met, you know, as, as I think you'll recall, I, I reached out to you out of the blue, I think maybe five or six years ago when I was still in graduate school, because I had discovered that there was somebody who it seemed like had almost exactly the same kind of career path that I had, which was going to Amherst, as you alluded to. And then we actually we worked for the same consulting firm. Before we we, before we, we both went to get a phd in in history um, mm-hmm. on opposite sides of the coast as it turned out but our advisors know each other well and are, are friendly um mm-hmm. you know so so it just it struck me and you were so generous back then to to offer to meet up and we had a, a, a nice lunch um you know back in uh whatever that was 2015 2016 in Pomona mm-hmm. i think we, i still remember you took me to that great taco place and Oh, um, so I, 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 I so appreciate, I so appreciate that you've, you know, kind of um, continued to, to stay in touch and, and to, we were actually, I, I think we were supposed to see each other um, in New Orleans next month for the oh, Society wow. of Historians yeah. of American Foreign Relations. But
1: it's true.
0: unfortunately, the, the pandemic is keeping us apart.
1: Yes. One of many things that the pandemic has wrought. Um, no, I, I, I do remember, I remember you emailing me and of course we didn't overlap at Amherst, I think you're, I'm class of 2000, I think you're class of 2006, are you? That's right,
0: that's
1: right. Yeah, six and, um, but it is funny how parallel our our careers have been because it's not, I mean, it is common to go to Amherst and then go work in management consulting, right? I think that's actually a very um, uh, uh, typical thing for an Amherst grad to do after uh, college. But it, I don't think there are many of us who then went from the from consulting to get the PhD in history, right? I mean, not not that we're the only two, but I, I don't think that's a very uh, common career path. So.
0: No, I think that's right. But one of the things that that it does occur to me, you know, and I perhaps you might have some thoughts about this before we talk about the book is you know, in this era of talking about the alt act, you know, careers, um, and, and one of the things that, you know, people are really thinking about now is what the job market is going to look like for next year, um, given some of the, you know, austerity measures that different universities are putting, um, you know, is, is how you how you think about the way that consulting did or did not influence how you approached history, or, or how you sort of see, you know, your career path as it went from, you know, studying mm-hmm. history at Amherst in undergrad to working in the business sector and then coming into, um, you know, academia and, and working as a faculty member, you know, mm-hmm. do you see that sort of playing out in a way that that has influenced how you approach your work or how you do research? What what kind of lessons have you drawn from, um, you know, working outside of academia into what you do now?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I think about this a lot in a, in a number of different So when I was at Amherst, and I don't know what your experience was, but when when I was at Amherst, um, I was encouraged by my senior thesis advisor to pursue a career in history. Um, It wasn't that I had never thought about it, but um, I I think I just didn't know that much about it. And um, so she, while I was a junior and then a senior writing my thesis with her, um, she really... Uh, sort of encouraged my me to explore that as a potential career path. But it felt as though all I had done up to that point was school. And I was very good at school, but I didn't really know anything but that. So um, one thing that I think doing consulting, delaying graduate school for a couple of years and doing management consulting did, was it really launched me into a very different kind of environment. And as you know, uh, management consulting is very project-based. So I worked on medium-duty truck manufacturing. I worked in pharmaceuticals. I worked in um, in a, a, did a kind of marketing project for a major uh, retailer, which is now out of business. Actually, a lot of my former clients, as I'm thinking about it, are now out of business. Um, <laughs> it might be a reflection on me as a consultant, but I hope not. Uh, but it really was great to get a kind of sampler of how a lot of different people lived and how they worked and what the kinds of jobs were like. I mean, I was in medium-duty truck manufacturing plants in West Virginia for one of my cases. So I think um, as a historian and as someone who is a social historian by training, um, just being in that world and having these little windows onto so many different um, ways of life and and ways of working and different uh, cultures of work, um, it was really... it was really broadening um, in a way that, uh, in in a way, in a kind of broadening experience that I hadn't had before. Um, So I think one, that was good preparation, but two, it also really um, matured me and professionalized me um, in a way that I think graduate school doesn't necessarily encourage. I think graduate school can often be um, a pretty, Graduate school can often be a state of arrested development, right? You know, you, you you basically roll out of undergrad into grad school and you can kind of be the same person who you've been and 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 sleep until 10 a.m. and play a lot of Fortnite or whatever. I, I'm not a Fortnite player, but, you know, pick, pick whatever your, um you know, brainless pastime is. You can kind of continue that in graduate school to a certain extent. So I think actually leaving the school environment, going and working at the firm that you and I worked at, it w- really forced me to develop some um, more adult professional habits much earlier than I think um, I otherwise would have. So when I started graduate school um, at 24, I already felt as though, you know, I was on a clock, you know, I, I had a, a business day, I, if I had a meeting with my advisor or, or any of my mentors, I had an agenda. Um, you know, I had a kind of, of professional outlook that I think I learned during consulting. So of course, you know, now when I talk to students, um, and they're thinking about academic careers or, um, you know, alt-act careers, you know, I, I think I do have a perspective to offer them. Um, I did go back to get a PhD. I knew it was the right thing for me. I knew as I looked ahead, um, at the career path in consulting that I didn't want to do that. Um, I didn't want to get an MBA. I didn't want to um, kind of rise up in, in the hierarchy in that way. Um, so I, I, I feel as though I had a much more certainty and commitment about pursuing an academic career, which is something you need to have if you're going to do it. It takes, what, five, six, eight years to get a PhD um, the job market is, as we know, uh, what it is. And I think if you don't have that real clarity of vision and drive and sense of purpose um, in this career, it, it, it can be really hard to sustain the commitment to it um, in, in, in the years that it can take to develop um, develop the kind of career that you want. So, yeah, no, I'm, I am enormously grateful for my time at our, our former, um, firm, which is also now no longer in existence. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I, I think it really did, um, it, it really was a great foundation for me, uh, and what I think what I needed at that time.
0: Yeah, I, I think those are, those are kind of my experiences too, you know, in, in thinking about how that experience translate into certain kind of skills. You know, and just thinking about what historians really do, which is essentially put together narratives with incomplete data um, or conflicting data, right, which is kind of what consultants also do. I swear this is not a paid advertisement for the management consulting industry, but I do think it's it's useful to sort of think through some of the different paths that we have traveled on, you know, and, and where they might have led and and um, how we come to do the work that we do, which leads us back to the question that I think you you left us um, with on on the last um, um question that I asked you about, um, uh, you know, your work and your background. Your first book was really about, you know, who owns land and how much should they own, right? It's it's sort of um, in the American West. This is about Chinese medicine. Tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book about the history of Chinese medicine in the United States.
1: I know they don't seem all that related, but they really are. Um, I get that question a lot because it does seem like a big shift. Um, so, Yes, my first book was a book called Squatter's Republic um, Land and the Politics of Monopoly in California. And it was about, it was a social history of squatters. It was a social history of people who came to California and they uh, claimed to own the land that they used and occupied. Uh, so I learned a lot in writing that book. That book was uh, based on my dissertation. It was very much a book about the American West. It was engaged with questions that are really central to that field. Um, It it was about a quirky cast of characters. I mean, these squatters who I wrote about in that book, I really came to to love them and see them as kind of people in my life. Um, And I think the thing that I learned most writing that book, first the dissertation and then the book, was I learned about what kind of history I like to do, what kind of historical research I like to do. And what it is, is is I like to research people. I like to research ordinary people and follow them through time and learn about their weird habits and ways of thinking and strange encounters that they have with others. So when I finished that book and I was thinking about, okay, what am I going to do next? What's, What's my second project, big book project going to be? I I wanted to do more of that kind of research. I wanted to write about people. And then there there are really two other things that took me to Chinese medicine. The first was that I am Chinese American, um, at least on my mom's side. And pretty much, and I don't know if this is your experience, Ian, but I think when you are Chinese American or when you inhabit a certain kind of of identity, I think broadly defined, a social identity broadly defined, and you're in social history, very often people kindly and innocently will ask you, oh, do you write the history of that group, right? So for me being a Chinese American, are you going to write about Chinese Americans? And I had always really resisted that because I didn't want to be Kind of reduced in that way it felt to me very reductive to, to say well I am Chinese American and I've had these kinds of embodied experiences so that's what I should write about but you know by the time I finished the second book I was sort of ready to set that aside. Um, I wanted to write about uh, people who I knew and places I was from and and learn more about my heritage, my culture. Um, because my great-grandparents did immigrate to um, San Francisco from Canton in the late 19th century. So I, I was sort of just interested in that, that history. And then the second thing that pushed me toward Chinese medicine is I was living and working in Portland, Oregon. I was uh, my first job out of graduate school was at Reed College in Portland. and anyone who lives in Oregon knows uh, about this really remarkable, apothecary a Chinese apothecary that has been preserved by the state it's a state heritage site it's way out in eastern Oregon very rural part of the state uh, very depressed very poor part of the state Um, so it's it's in a town called John Day on the John Day River and it was in the late 19th century uh, a gold town it was a gold rush town and a lot of Chinese miners settled there in the 1880s, um, and, and stayed and they stayed and worked in the timber industry, predominantly a little bit in ranching, but mostly timber. Um, and one of these people who went there to, to prospect for gold was a man named Ng He. Um, he had not been trained as an herbalist. Uh, he, he had immigrated from China with his father. Uh, he'd immigrated to Walla Walla, Washington, which wasn't very far away. Um, And then he went to John Day when they discovered gold. So he had a kind of ordinary, or maybe I should say typical experience um, for a a Chinese man at that time. But when he got to John Day, he fell under the apprenticeship, kind of accidentally became apprentice to a Chinese herbalist. And he learned uh, pulsology, which is diagnosis by pulse. He learned herbalism from this other Chinese man who was living there. And then he went into business with um, two other fellows, two other Chinese immigrants. Um, they purchased a dry goods store and they turned it into an apothecary. And that apothecary um, in, in John Day was in operation basically continuously for the better part of um, about 50 or 60 years until Ing was too old uh, to live out there on his own. And his nephew um, kind of moved him out and, and took him to Portland. So when the nephew came and and moved his uncle out, the nephew just locked the door on this building and walked away. And this was in the 1940s. So for about um, not quite 30 years, that building sat like a tomb, just um, frozen in time. And no one went in, no one touched it. Um, And then in the 1970s, with the bicentennial uh, celebration of the United States Bicentennial Celebration, there Suddenly, was a, a lot more money available for doing local preservationist-type projects. So the state of Oregon came into possession of this building. They turned it into a museum. They turned it into an archive. Um, it's a park you can go and visit. It's a state heritage park. And you can go and learn about Nghe and, and his, his life. So like I said, I was living in Portland and, and everyone kind of knows about this place. Um, it's been the subject of an Oregon public broadcasting documentary. I had a student at Reed who, was, who had worked on that documentary. And so in talking to that student, I started to think, you know, gosh, I wonder, I wonder if there are other people like hey, I mean, I wonder how many of these Chinese herbalists there were. And because I was interested in the American West, I was mostly thinking, you know, I I wonder where they are in the American West. And so sometime around 2011, I just started looking for them. Um, And it it was a real kind of hunt and peck project. But what I started to realize as I just kept finding more and more of these mostly men, but some women, is that Chinese herbalists were everywhere. Um, Anywhere there were Chinese people, there were Chinese herbalists, and in many ways, they were just hiding in plain sight. It became easy to find them once I started looking. So I didn't necessarily intend for it to become a book, but after a while, it just felt like it—it it had to be that um, that there was too much to say about these people for just an article. Um, that they really that they really deserved a story, and um, so. So it became this this book project.
0: I love your your um, the way you frame that right that that wherever there were Chinese immigrants, there were Chinese herbalists, and I think that's why, in some ways, this is a, a, such an important kind of addition to the historiography um, on Chinese American immigration because it reflects, in some ways, you know the the sort of basic social history of the community, but also as as we'll talk about in a bit you know, the community's interactions with non-Chinese, uh, with white and Spanish-speaking uh, Americans as well. Um, before we go there, you know, one of the things I wanted to sort of start off with um, is is to kind of just talk quickly about the historiographical interventions that you're making in the book. Um, and, and part of what I loved about the introduction, in fact, um, was how um, ambitious yet lucid the, the explanation of those major interventions are, and, and I picked up on five, um, and, and um, you can test my reading abilities by um, deciding whether or not I've, I've summarized it, um, but I wonder if you can talk a bit about the, the kind of interventions you're making in the history of Chinese medicine in the United States, in the history of American Orientalism, in the history of American medicine, in the history of public health, and in environmental history, right? Sort of five major areas that this book about Chinese medicine in the United States addresses. Can you just maybe summarize for us a little bit what those major interventions are and how you see this book adding to the literature?
1: Sure. you know, I so let's start with with the history of of Chinese medicine, which is such a vast and rich field. Um you know, i I think this is really something where over time historians and anthropologists looking at the development of Chinese medical knowledge systems, and their dias- diaspora, um, they've really done such extraordinary and diverse work. So we now we, we think of Chinese medicine, I think in this country, in a, in a pr- fairly simplistic way, we tend to think of it as, as acupuncture uh, and herbalism. Um, but, you know, Chinese medicine is really an umbrella term for just this remarkable array of modalities. Um, so one thing that I became interested in in thinking about its its transplantation to the United States is really about how, um, like I said, something that is so uh, remarkably diverse beco- transforms and becomes something other in um, the United States. It still retains a kind of um, core connection to the traditions and China, Um, but in some ways it it does become its own thing in this environment. It becomes responsive to other kinds of medical epistemologies, medical cultures, um, medical consumerism uh, that that its practitioners encounter. And so I think if there's an intervention that I make in the history of Chinese medicine, it it is really to look at um, its transmission, its transplantation to the United States um, in a more, uh, let's say, like longitudinal way that, than really has been done before. Um, there, there haven't been other books that have taken this really long view, a uh, two-century view of Chinese medicine in the United States. But I think it does um, allow me to kind of join that conversation that other historians and anthropologists have been, have been building over the decades about um, traditional Chinese medicine or traditional t- Chinese um, medical therapies. Uh, as you said, I mean, I, I really, um, you know, I, I believe kind of first and foremost, this is a social history of medicine, that it's about Chinese immigrants, Chinese entrepreneurs coming to the United States. Um, and I think one thing that I really admire about um, these people who I write about is that entrepreneurial spirit. So a kind of central um, intervention I make in the book is looking critically at the kind of terms of their entrepreneurship. So, other people who've written about Chinese herbalists in the United States um, have largely written about them as people who overcame adversity, who confronted um, you know major barriers, major uh, kind of forms of discrimination, right, marginalization. All of that is absolutely true. That Chinese herbalists confronted all of that that they found ways of overcoming it, um, that they found ways of convincing non-Chinese patients to advocate for them, to to be their allies. All of that is absolutely true and is something that a lot of historians and biographers have written about. At the same time, what I argue is that one of the ways in which these entrepreneurs did um, confront and overcome uh, such barriers is they capitalized on racist discourse. They capitalized on Orientalist expectations. And so what I found is that very often um, these men and women who were practicing Chinese medicine, who were uh, treating both Chinese and non-Chinese patients, very often I found that the way they succeeded was in basically embracing and and, um, reappropriating Oriental stereotypes, so stereotypes of barbarism, backwardness, effeminacy, um, deviance. You know, they they did not attempt always. They did not always attempt to reject or dispel these kinds of racist tropes. Very often, they said yes, and this is what makes me a superior practitioner of medicine. This is really my value proposition: is this kind of access to um, a more essential, more natural, um, maybe less civilized, ancient uh, system of medical knowledge. So I, I really, um, I think that is maybe kind of the major contribution to um, the literature on on Chinese American history or Asian American history is this kind of narrative of self orientalization that I talk about that Chinese doctors really participated in, perpetuated Orientalist stereotypes. They turned them to their own advantage um, and they profited from their marginality. And I think that that is something that's a little bit difficult um, to grapple with. Uh, It's certainly something when when I was earlier on in the project and presenting it and very often presenting it to people who um, were consumers or practitioners of Chinese medicine themselves, I, I tended to get a lot of pushback about that. Um, that it felt as though I was um, being unfairly critical of these men and women, um, and critical of their their constrained choices. But I, I think um, I think it's really important in in the history to confront the ways that um, these doctors did maintain and and perpetuate racism that was directed toward their own community. Um, So so as far as um, kind of public health and really environmental health, um, one of the things that initially drew me to the project was thinking about discourses of natural medicine. And this is actually a way in which I think I could also talk about the intervention that I make into social history of American medicine, too. Um, in the in the history of American medicine there has been I think um, you know a significant amount of attention paid to what we would now call alternative or irregular uh, medical sex so I think we could think of things like homeopathy um Chiropractic medicine; those are probably the, the two most obvious. But naturopathy—I mean, there there are a bunch—and um, historians of medicine have written about them and written about the ways in which these medical traditions, um, these medical sects, played on concepts of nature. So I was interested in that in coming to this project um, because, of course, now um, in in you know 21st century America. Chinese medicine, especially acupuncture and herbalism, is very much associated with those kinds of complementary and alternative medical traditions. It's very much kind of enveloped into a discourse of natural medicine. So, um, you know, part of my my curiosity about this project was looking at the historical origins of, of that kind of nature thinking and bringing into a conversation that was already happening amongst historians of medicine, bringing in the dimension that I've been talking about that, you know, these practitioners of Chinese medicine, which really had basically been entirely ignored by the literature. Um, I think, you know, and I say this in my introduction, um, you know, you might find a a passing reference here or there to Chinese herbalists, but but basically they were invisible in that entire corpus of of scholarship. But where that necessarily then took me was thinking about not just nature with the capital N, um, you know, the sort of ideas about nature, but really the the real nature. I mean, what the, the sort of material environment in which Chinese medicine was was produced and um, distributed and consumed. Um, and I had really wanted to do more with that than I did. I had a lot of prescriptions. Um, Uh, You know, so so the prescription pads that that Chinese doctors wrote, um, wrote up. And so I knew to a certain extent the kinds of things they were using in their um, in their compounds. Um, And I I had really hoped to do a lot more with that than I did. But I, I really ran up against a kind of problem of of sources and translation that it just became really difficult to say very much beyond. Um, well, these are the types of herbs that they are using. They're tending to prescribe more botanical than zoological um, medicinal ingredients. Um, they're tending to source more of their um, their ingredients in China than the United States. Um, but it did kind of lock, or n- not lock me into, but kind of connect me, I should say, connect me to this, um, this set of scholars who've been thinking about, really environmental health. Like what does it mean to be a human body in an environment and how do conceptions of human health flow from that both material and immaterial relationship? Um, so I i think where I hope to be intervening, and this is really, um, you know, I think of myself not as really changing the direction of that literature, but just sort of more building on it um, is, is thinking about how modern conceptions of the human body and the nature of human health evolve in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, I think at this point, we no longer as historians, no longer have this sort of sense of like, well, by the early 20th century, um, the germ theory of disease has become, has, you know, prevails and and everyone believes that disease is caused by these little microorganisms and uh, which as long as you can kind of sanitize them, contain them, um, you, you know, you'll remain in perfect health. We we no longer think that there's a sort of switch that happens um, around the turn of the 20th century. Well, I think everyone accepts and understands the way that that um, earlier notions of the human body as being embedded in an environment, as being very much in a kind of two-way dialectical relationship with the natural environment, everyone under- understands at this point that that um, that that persists in different ways. Um, even as, let's say, the medical marketplace is being dominated by um, Western-style medical scientists who are pushing the germ theory, um, sort of, uh, you know making it more uh, predominant than, than it had been before. Um, So I guess where I come in is in as being part of that, a telling of that story, which is to say, look, these practitioners of Chinese medicine were, were offering a way of conceptualizing the body and its relationship to nature um, in ways that felt familiar, felt um, comfortable To non Chinese patients um, in ways that recalled their own experiences with domestic medicine that appealed to a certain kind of logic of nature that they held on to. Um, So, I I have in this book kind of embedded Chinese herbalists in that story. But then that compelled me to go back and actually read the literature on the discourse of natural medicine, such as it was in Chinese medicine. Um, And that's where I think we see a really important disconnect, um, which is that in traditional Chinese medicine, there is, of course, not a sense of um, a dichotomous relationship between the natural and the unnatural or the material and the immaterial. These things exist on a continuum. It's not that one is good and healthy and the other one is bad and unhealthy. But Chinese doctors, I think, quite um, brilliantly learn a new way of thinking about nature, a new way of talking about natural medicine once they come to the United States. And they are able to to translate their therapeutic practices and principles into that language. And I, I really, I argue that this is really um, one of the foundations of their success in the United States is that, that ability, um, that ability to do that, that it's not exactly translation work, um, but it, it's more like imaginative, um, I don't know, reimagining, I, I would say, of, of their of their traditions.
0: That's a that's really helpful context um, for us to dive into the chapters of the book. And I, I should preface this by um, telling listeners how it's uh, organized, in, in addition to the introduction, which you alluded to earlier, and an epilogue that brings us up really to the present day. There are sort of seven chapters uh, that really ambitiously tackle the history of Chinese medicine from the colonial period, you know, all the way up to the 1970s and beyond. Um, and that first chapter, I think, really does a nice job of, again, playing up that congruence in terms of plant-based medicine in colonial and early Republican US, you know, with uh, Chinese uh, uh, medical materials, um you know and, and you talk about um some of the uh the ingredients like tea and opium and ginseng um that uh are circulating in uh american understandings uh of, of medicine during that time uh, much of it sort of inherited from from europe and their uh familiarity with chinese medicine uh, through european travels to to that country um but i think that's one of the things that uh it, it really was astounding in that first chapter was that the the, the the depth of knowledge, even back in the late 18th and early 19th century, um, I don't know. Maybe you want to add a little bit more about about sort of that deep background. Um, perhaps it's maybe surprising to, to listeners um, that even you know colonists and 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 uh, sort of early Americans were aware of and engaged with Chinese medicine.
1: Yeah, that is, I think, one of the things that to me is no longer surprising, but but can be surprising to someone who. Um, hasn't thought about this before, but of course, um, if we think about um, the history of early modern Europe and its colonial endeavors, um, a huge amount of colonial energies were spent prospecting for new sources of medicine. So, of course, when um, European travelers go to China um, in, the, in the kind of late medieval period and the early modern period, one of the things they want to learn about is medicine. So there is from um, kind of the time of Marco Polo on a sort of conduit of of sending materia medica, sending medical knowledge to from China to Europe. And then the United States is really an annex to all of that. So in the uh, colonial period in America um, and into the era of the the early republic, uh, medicine that has been uh, or medicinal ingredients that have been imported from China to London, End up in American apothecaries. They end up um, being peddled by itinerant um, drug sellers in um, in colonial America and the early republic and, and the United States in the early republic. So, in really, for Americans of that period, Chinese herbal medicine was sort of part of their habits of self dosing. Um, it wasn't really all that exotic or unusual um you know and and there, it wasn't just tea and ginseng and opium right it's rhubarb cassia camphor um, even something that that's recently been in the new york times because of um it's it's endangered um it's not really a plant and it's not really an insect it's like a combo plant insect um cordyceps sinensis and it's been in the new york times lately because it's threatened by global climate change but but even back then, um, that kind of weird plant-fungus hybrid was being peddled um, by American drug sellers. So I think all of that is to say, long before there were actually Chinese people in the United States, or at least in significant numbers, um, there was Chinese medicine. This is how uh, many Americans came to know things about China. Um, and, and it was not exotic. It was ordinary.
0: Yeah, and and it adds really nicely to this growing literature we have on sort of Asian American history before the mass arrival of Asians in the United States, right? You know, sort of Jack Chen's work and others who've written about, uh, you know, for example, porcelains and, you know, uh, and their presence in in early American history. Um, You know, one of the things I I found particularly striking was that you read at one point that some of these um, sort of advertisements uh, urging people to sort of, seek out ginseng in western lands was one of the sort of maybe motivations for people to kind of uh you know move westward and so to the extent that you know ginseng Chinese medicine you know concerns with China is tied directly to westward expansion during this period this early period is is really striking again for reorienting our understanding of how you know imagination about China and Chinese culture uh becomes implicated in nation building and and, uh settler colonialism um you know, in, in North America. With that, maybe we can sort of turn to uh, the next, and I want to sort of frame this as uh, the next four chapters as being about the long progressive era. I'm going to, I'm going to ask that very annoying oral exam question, uh, you know, type of question about, about the progressive era, right? Because I, I think you and I share this, an interest in this time period you've written about the Gilded Age as well. Um, you know, the progressive era and and the, specifically in this book, the trans-Pacific nature of the progressive era is something that I think is only starting to be explored. Um, you know, it, it takes place in this book in the form of uh, migration, but also the the kind of policing and regulation of authority and medical knowledge. So how do you think about the the progressive era through the lens of Chinese medicine? You know, what is what does that subject help us understand more about this very... Crucial period of American history.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, I think we could talk about the Progressive Era all day long. Um, I, I I share a love of it with you. It's so so to me, this is really a story about what does it mean to be modern. I mean, I, I think that is such the central question of 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 progressivism, and I think this story about Chinese um, herbal doctors is a window onto kind of the many different competing um, meanings and valences of modernity in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, So let's, I mean, we can kind of attack this from a number of angles, but let's start with just this issue of regulation, um, the rise of bureaucracies. Um, This is the moment, right, the late 19th and early 20th century is the moment that public health, that medical bureaucracies at the state and local level, that they coalesce. It's not that they were absent before, but they achieve a kind of of presence and uniformity of vision that is socially transformative. I mean, it is it, and environmentally transformative. Um, and I think one of the things that this project explores is the way that those bureaucracies are constructed in the space in the kind of negotiated space between officials, bureaucrats, elite um, kind of knowledge brokers, and these Chinese herbalists. Um, that there is um, a way in which authority, the authority to regulate and the authority to um, kind of dictate the terms of the medical marketplace only, um, happens, right? It only kind of comes into being, uh, it comes into existence by its distance from, and its distinction from the other. And in this case, the other are Chinese herbalists. So this whole book could have been about the kind of legal regime of policing Chinese herbalists, um, you know, defining what they do as being not only inferior, but being dangerous to human bodies, um, being sort of, uh, or necessitating the interventions of a regulatory state. But I think what's really interesting to me is not just that kind of construction of the modern bureaucracy, but also the cracks in it and the ways in which um, these Chinese herbalists moving through that system and responding to it are able to both build it up and undo it at the same time. So there is no kind of, of uniform sense of 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 modernity, progress. Um, there is no kind of uniform sense of what constitutes medical authority. These things are being kind of built up and torn down continuously throughout the progressive era. So yeah, you know I, I I I too use this term the long progressive era um, in this book. Um, I think it, it's really helpful to see the late 19th century, the last decades of the 19th century, um, as being a kind of continuous um, whole with the early part of the 20th century. Um, and so yeah, I think the book really does um, sort of trace the evolution of that over about um, you know I would say a 50. Fifty-year period, at least until the Great Depression kind of drops in and really disrupts possibilities for um, not only bureaucrats but um, but but practitioners as well. Mostly, I focus on the practitioners. Um,
0: yeah, maybe before we um, jump into the the 1930s, you know, I want to again sort of note for listeners that chapters three, four, and five really focus on you know the interactions that. Uh, Chinese doctors have, uh, herbalists have, with non-Chinese consumers and customers and patients. Uh, But then, you know, chapters four and five are looking at the kind of legal, institutional, but also the kind of discursive and rhetorical responses to Chinese medicine in the United States, again, in this moment of increasing regulation. But I wanted to go back to chapter two for just a second to give you a chance to talk about um, the, the, the kind of importance of Chinese medicine among Chinese communities in the United States, the the social history that you talked about doing earlier, what roles do Chinese medicine uh, and and Chinese um, herbalists play uh, among Chinese immigrants uh, in the uh, the long progressive era?
1: This is something that was really interesting to me uh, as I was starting this project, was learning about the many different Roles that Chinese herbalists played within their communities, because obviously, obviously they were medical practitioners. Obviously, they were um, diagnosing, prescribing medicine, selling medicine, um, treating um, Chinese immigrants. I'm, they were there from day one. They, they, they were among the first waves of, of mass immigration from China in the 1850s. Um, so, so they've always been a part of the community in that sense. But they don't just—they don't just occupy themselves with healthcare. They they really um, do become more generally supportive of the health of the community. So they are um, running grocery stores, dry goods stores. They have their shops become kind of centers for religious life and community life. Um, we know that they. Were often used um, as places where you might go to worship at a shrine or play cards or dice um, to get your mail. I think one thing that um, these Chinese doctors are able to do because they do tend to be more educated, um, they do tend to be literate. Uh, they they serve as like, basically like a post office very often. They'll they'll write letters home for Chinese immigrants. Um, they'll kind of hold on to mail that comes in from China until um, uh, Chinese uh, laborers come back from their work site and are able to pick it up. Um, And then I think not surprisingly, because of their literacy and and because of their relative affluence, um, they often become well positioned to be labor brokers. Um, So so making sure that um, Chinese immigrants can connect with non-Chinese employers, and from labor brokering, it's sort of a, an easy slide into um, assisting Chinese immigrants with circumventing uh, exclusion once the first exclusion laws were passed in the 1880s. Um, and then certainly human trafficking. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Chinese doctors became, become smugglers. Um, you know, they're, they're kind of doing it all. And, um, and again, I think it's because they because of their status, because they are somewhat better educated, because they tend to be somewhat more affluent than other members of their community. And, and I think they are trusted, right? They, their, their knowledge and their centrality make them, kind of imbue them with a natural authority in the community. So a lot of chapter two is thinking about um, what is it that Chinese herbalists do for, Chinese people once they get to the United States and I, I do think it's a matter of survival. I think it was hard it, uh, you know to live in the United States as a Chinese person was difficult. it was scary it was dangerous. Um, you know the types of jobs that Chinese men and women had in um, in the mid 19th century United States were the most treacherous were the least desirable kinds of jobs um, the most hazardous. And there was, was very um, there were very few uh, Western style practitioners or hospitals that would admit and treat Chinese people. So so in a really very basic sense, Chinese herbalists were essential to um, the health and survival of Chinese immigrants. But then um, you know over time they do take on these much more expansive roles um, in providing beyond the basic needs for immigrant communities.
0: Maybe this might be a good time too. um, if you might talk, um, about the sources and and the research, the social historical research that you do, you know, in some ways, you know, as, as figures in the community go, we could imagine Chinese herbalists and doctors to, you know, because they're slightly more educated, a little bit wealthier, um, you know, than the average Chinese immigrant to the United States during this period, be somewhat more likely to leave behind some records, right? And then you alluded earlier to some prescription pads you had. And obviously, there's the Camel Chung store that was, as you said, kind of frozen in time um, in, in, in Oregon. Um, I noticed you also did some oral interviews with uh, descendants of, of, of Chinese herbalists and, and uh, medical practitioners. Um, tell us about the sources that you used for this particular project um, and how you put them together.
1: So the first thing I should say is, is it really outside of Chung there aren't a lot of archives, traditional archives that collect the, the papers of Chinese herbalists, but there are a few. Um, and so I pretty early on exhausted the kind of traditional archival repositories of these things. Um And then I did what everyone does. I turned to census manuscripts, um, court cases, transcripts from court cases. Chinese herbalists got arrested a lot um, for all sorts of things, mostly practicing without a license. But, um, you know, they they get arrested for malpractice. They get arrested for um, performing abortions when abortion was illegal, when and where it was. Um, so I, I, I had arrest records and um, and transcripts from court cases um, and certainly no shortage of um, things written about them. Uh, so travel logs and a lot of, of, let's say, opinion pieces published in newspapers, um, but then I also had their advertisements published in newspapers, in English language newspapers, in um, Spanish language newspapers, in Chinese language newspapers, Um, you know, Chinese herbalists were um, really uh, active users of that medium to promote their work. Um, So I would say most of the sources do come from those types of public records. And
0: and what I love, actually, if I can just um, add something here that listeners may be interested in, is the way that sometimes those sources interpolate, right? So the way that you talk about how legal records and testimony in court gets used or reproduced in newspaper articles as evidence in support of a particular Chinese doctor's practice, right, Is, is how they sort of, again, you know, as you were saying with uh, earlier, with self orientalizing, reappropriate some of the malicious things that people are saying about them in order to uh, uh, you know drive up business or, or advertise their own
1: services. Oh yes, they. I think one of the practitioners um, who I write about who was in Oakland. I mean, he took out I think a six page ad just to print the transcript from one of his one of the times he was arrested and 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 put on trial. Um, so he really, he, 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 and not just him, uh, but a lot of them really took the opportunity to use those that, that exposure, right. That public exposure as a, as a marketing tool, I mean, to promote their services and, and to bring in patients who they had cured and have those patients go on record talking about the, um, you know, the efficacy of their medicine. So yeah, no, absolutely. Um, there, there there's a very long tradition of, I guess turning turning those lemons into lemonade. And and Chinese doctors really were arrested so frequently. I mean, they they really got to know the court system well. And I think there's also a connection there and, um, to um to these histories of of immigration restrictions and the way that Chinese people had to become quite adept at using the judicial system to advance their cause um, in circumventing exclusion. there's sort of a, a a continuum here where Chinese herbalists as their practice was being restricted were drawing on a lot of those lessons and um, and, and, and following in the footsteps of, of people who'd come before them. Um, yeah so yeah court cases yeah the court transcripts appear very often in in advertisements. Um, but as you mentioned, I ended up doing some oral histories when, um, you know, basically how it works is like if if you are Chinese in America, you you know, if you have Chinese American person, someone, you know, someone who might be related to you or just part of your kind of extended um, fictive family someone's in an herbalist. Like, I mean, it's, it's just like, it's like a game of six degrees of separation, only it's not as many as six. It's like two, you know, two degrees of separation. They're just, um, it was not difficult to find um, the children of these herbalists. Um, You know, they're elderly, the people that I interviewed, um, but they are still around and very often they are holding on to their family papers. So, um, one woman who I interviewed, um, she was living in, she is living, she's still alive. She's living in Tucson. And um, her father and mother had um, worked, her father was the herbalist, her mother was the pharmacist, her mother compounded the remedies. Um, and they've kind of traveled around the American West over the years and op- opening and closing all of these different little herb shops. Um, so I ended up in this woman's their daughter's Tucson home. And I was interviewing her really about her recollections, you know, growing up um, and kind of hanging out the, at, the, at the family store. And she said, you know, I have all of the, the records. I have all of the business records, prescription pads, all of my dad's, um, like his scales and the things that he used in the store uh, to measure, you know, the ingredients. I have photographs. I have all this stuff. It's just sitting in my office in Tupperware boxes. Do you want it? Um, and so, you know, and I said, yes. <laughs> so, you know, um, very often these people just have stuff in their garages or they they were just kind of holding on to stuff. Another person I interview who um, he he was actually a smuggler um, in uh, he smuggled um, at the time at a time when there was an embargo on on importing Chinese goods above 20 pounds. Um, he His dad would send him up to 20 pounds of Chinese medicine in the mail and he would kind of like piece by piece import Chinese medicine to the United States and then sell it to um, to Chinatown, Los Angeles Chinatown herbalists. And so I went and I interviewed him in his um, office and I mean, walking in there, to see, like from floor to ceiling, he has just his life. History stacked up, um, and so I. It was great to do some oral histories and just see. Um, you know, everyone has their kind of personal archive, right? They're they're all sort of. Um, they have become curators of their own history and curators of their family history, and bit by bit, I was able to um, just add to the story and and kind of get more personal personal connections to the story um, through these these descendants.
0: That's so remarkable and I think it'll resonate with, you know, folks who are familiar with um, you know, sort of Chinese American but also, you know, other Asian groups in the United States, the histories and the ways that those are preserved and, you know, the ways that entire museums are founded just in some ways through dumpster diving and finding these sort of old um, records and documents but also material objects um, that can finally you know be preserved for for the rest of the community to be able to appreciate. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe we can spend the last few minutes, uh, sort of bringing the story up to the end of the book, um, chapters six and seven, which are entitled decline and rediscovery, uh, respectively, um, sketch out, I think, you know, even as the title suggests, um, a, a trajectory, um, that's very contingent for Chinese medicine in the United States from the great depression onward. Um, you talk about, uh, what happens during the great depression and during world war II, and specifically starting in the 1970s, this kind of revival specifically around acupuncture because of an article that uh, someone named James Reston writes about being treated in Beijing in 1971 in the New York Times that instigates a whole kind of new wave of interest. So what happens to Chinese medicine after the long progressive era in the United States from the 1930s onward?
1: Well, it doesn't go away. Um, and this is something that I think um, this book is able to show in ways that other histories have not um, you know the during the um the great depression during world war ii um and and the years following it there is a, a kind of, it, it's a struggle um, it's largely a struggle for all the reasons that this era is a struggle for people but for chinese doctors in particular this is um this is a real kind of crisis moment because supply lines are cut and um you know, with the thing about Chinese herbalism is, in most cases, uh, for most of the um, ingredients, Chinese herbalists had to use, had to source their supply in China, and that just has to do with the medical tradition. That um, when you when you take Chinese herbs, um, it, it's very much dependent on highly specific types of ingredients like ingredients that have to be procured not just in a particular place but in a particular season under a particular moon i mean there's this this enormous kind of cosmological thinking that goes around um, the procurement of medicinal plants and animals and minerals in the chinese medical tradition so um so in the 1930s, with the with the Depression and um, the wars in Asia, um, you know, kind of going back to, I realize, realize we didn't get much chance to talk about the kind of trans-Pacific aspect of the story, but um, because of the wars in Asia beginning in the 1930s and extending into um, what we know as World War II, uh, Chinese doctors couldn't restock their shelves. Um, they really, they were struggling not just because of the collapse in um, the economy, but because of a very kind of basic problem of supply line. And that was continued um, uh, after the communist revolution in China and into the era of the Korean war, the war on the Korean peninsula, um, because the United States had an embargo on um, Chinese imports. So this, you know, a couple decades of real difficulty for Chinese doctors. But what I found in my research and when I try to get across in the book is that they go into a state of decline, but they don't go away. Um, They don't, um, many of them go out of business, but not all of them. They find ways, creative ways, to um, source their ingredients in other places, to use substitutes, um, to, you know, become trained in other therapies and kind of diversify their business. They encourage their children um, to go into medical um, professions that are, are not uh, Chinese herbalism, but that are kind of licensed medical professions. So I really became of uh, fascinated in that section about strategies for survival, how, how it is that um, Chinese doctors navigated that very, very difficult period um, in global history, but in, in their history um, in sort of more specific ways as well. Um, and then, of course, there is um, this moment in the early 1970s uh, that I talk about this moment when through a kind of a confluence of different things, so a, a um, sort of cultural currents, global affairs, relations between the US and China, changing uh, a changing medical marketplace in the United States, this sort of perfect storm of factors. Um, creates an opportunity for Chinese acupuncture to be really rediscovered by American consumers. It's not a modality that had been very significant in the United States. Um, It wasn't something that Chinese herbalists who tended to immigrate to the United States had been trained in. When they they came to the U.S., um, acupuncture was sort of just like a kind of low-class thing. It was street surgery, so the, the types of immigrants who came to the US and became herbalists here were sort of above doing that sort of thing. But when acupuncture did sort of sweep the nation, when there's sort of this frenzy for acupuncture in the early 70s, Chinese herbalists were well positioned to kind of take advantage of that moment. And they they kind of latch on to acupuncturists, they they kind of get swept into um, the licensing movement for acupuncture. That is to say, um, you know, licenses in oriental medicine and acupuncture usually include herbalism. So suddenly they can emerge from these kind of hidden corners of the medical marketplace. They can actually be licensed. And that opens up all of these new possibilities for working within what we think of as mainstream Medical care, um, but I think where I where I land on that is that um, this isn't this isn't necessarily a happy ending. Um, you know, the whole book is really building up this idea of Chinese doctors profiting from depending on notions of alterity, notions of of of, of their marginality, right? Their their otherness, um, and that's the basis of their value proposition to, to to be oriental to be other in that way is really what they have to offer um, and so there's a way in which this this new moment and it's still really playing out in a lot of ways now this it's a it's a really kind of a mixed blessing for practitioners of Chinese medicine I think many of them don't want to be enveloped into the mainstream medical s- system here I think many of them um, are resistant to the idea that they need to kind of translate their practices and principles for uh, a Western style system of, of medical knowledge or biomedicine, as we call it now. Um, they, they believe that kind of what empowers them and what makes them successful has allowed them to survive is um, being on the outside and, and being um, not an, not a complement to, but an alternative to Western-style medical science.
0: I think that's a really great note to, to end on because it summarizes how, as you write in the epilogue, for, for you know more than 200 years, practitioners of Chinese medicine in the United States define their work in a series of contradictions. And, and you define those as between exotic and familiar, between miraculous and empirical, between ancient and modern. Um, and, and there's so much more for us to explore, and I wish we had more time to talk about the book. Um, but I hope that at least our conversation gives listeners um, a view into the kind of really rich and contingent history of Chinese medicine in the United States and the way that it's implicated, you know, in, in uh, early American interactions and imaginations of China, uh, of immigration, uh, but also uh, interracial relationships during the long progressive era, and the regulation of the American medical marketplace, um, and the way that it's implicated in global war. Um, and and the cold war uh in in the mid to, to late 20th century um so i hope folks will have a chance to, to explore this book more for themselves before we let you go though tamara tell us what you're working on now um, i know the book just came out so perhaps that's not a good question to ask um you should you should be relaxing but but do you have any projects on the horizon
1: you know i i am so compelled now by this field the social history of medicine i'm Um, So it was not something I was trained in, but it's something that I have really started to read much more expansively in since um, since working on this project. So I just I think I don't have really set plans, but I think that I have a couple of new projects, new ideas for ways that I could go deeper into this space. I'm really interested in questions of modernization um, and I'm actually I've been working on a project about um, industrial spaces and chronic pain conditions in the 19th century United States. So ways in which kind of these new um, in, um, environments that uh, large scale industrialization created the way they put new stresses on the human body um, and the way that people begin to um, conceptualize pain and, um, And their their bodies in pain in different ways. So there's a phenomenon called railroad spine that I'm really interested in. And very often people think of it as being um, kind of like the earliest uh, imagination iteration of um, whiplash. Um, So a lot of the kind of historical literature about railroad spine says, um, you know, this is this is how people in the 19th century understood the condition of whiplash. But I think there's a lot more to it because really what railroad spine was, was this sort of weird, um, persistent, chronic pain condition that ensued mostly for people who were involved in railway accidents, but also for just habitual users of railroads. So I, I what I see in the literature there, what I see in the sources that I've looked at, is this um, real concern that maybe the construction of trains, maybe the kind of benefits of train travel and the ways that it can kind of transcend all these natural limitations, maybe that is is in fact incompatible with the essence of being in a human body. And so I'm, I'm, I'm really compelled by, um, by that project right now and. I'm really hopeful that now that the semester's over and the summer is here, I can get back to it. It's nearly impossible to get any research done um, while teaching.
0: Well, good luck with the research on on railroad spine. Um, It sounds truly painful. Uh, So I'm glad. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Perhaps you know, akin to the kind of like feeling of being smooshed into an airplane seat these days would be. another way for people to imagine how how terrible that must have been. But thank you again for taking the time to talk to us today about Herbs and Roots. Um, I I hope lots of people will find this book interesting. I imagine they will. Um, and, And it'll be, you know, really broadly applicable to lots of different fields and scholars who are looking at the history of Asian Americans, the history of medicine, the history of Orientalism, environmental history. So thanks again for taking the time to talk to us.
1: Oh, thank you, Anne. This was a lot of fun.
0: That was my conversation with Tamara Vanet Shelton about her new book, Herbs and Roots, a history of Chinese doctors in the American medical marketplace, published in 2019 by Yale University Press. My name is Ian Shin, and this is New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. As always, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.